0: But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about this saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain." Father, thank you for these words that Paul quoted from the prophet Isaiah, that death has lost its sting through the work of the Messiah on our behalf. Thank you that though death is all around us these days, that the cross has overcome it. Because he lives, you promised we would live as well. We thank you a day when men will hear the voice of the Son of God, Those who knew him will be called to a resurrection of life and those who did not to a resurrection of death. So, Father, help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. Help us to rest in the assurances of the completion of our salvation that even the worst that can happen is only the best for the true child of God for you promised to be absent from the body is to be present with you. We pray for our president, that you would help him. So many seem to hate him and attack him, and I have no doubt because of what he has done for Israel that he is in a spiritual battle that he may be unaware of, but we know what the scripture says. So we pray that you'd guard him and give him wisdom and strength in the midst of these challenging days for our nation. Rise up this morning from across the pulpits of America, men of God who know you and love you. Give them strength. Give me strength. Fill me and anoint me and use me, because without you I can do nothing. But with you all things are possible. May together, preachers of the gospel, lift up the one to whom you said you would draw all men to. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of 1 Kings? If you're new to the Bible, you can just find Psalms, that's about dead center, and then go to the left, and 1 Kings is right before First and Second Chronicles. I want to begin a brand new series for the next seven Sundays, a biographical study on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. He was a man who lived in very, very difficult times, much like we're living in. And yet, Elijah was a man of God who dared to trust God in the midst of great difficulty. It's been refreshing for me to study this man's life again because he's so real. And I suppose there's nothing that is so repulsive as phoniness in the spiritual realm. But there's nothing that is so magnetic as integrity. A man who walks with God, that's the kind of man this man was. And when you study his life, you'll see there's not a shred of phoniness in him. He is what he preaches through and through. Problems, he's full of problems. Phoniness, absolutely none. And by the way, have you ever wondered why so much of of the Bible is biographical in nature? God the Holy Spirit loves to take ordinary people like you and me People who walked with God, people who even failed with the Lord, and to teach us by their lives. We think sometimes of a man like Elijah that somehow he is different, but the New Testament reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He was cut out of the same piece of fabric that you have been cut out of. Just like you and I, he has been made in the image of God. And there are so many lessons that we can learn from studying the scripture biographically. I mean, you read of a man like Abraham or Moses or Paul or Barnabas or whoever it might be, and you just come away challenged. And I believe that we will come away challenged having studied this man. 1 Kings 17, he suddenly, quickly, without notice, appears on the pages of Scripture, and as we will see before we're finished, he will leave just as fast. 1 Kings 17, I hope you have a Bible. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Follow along. Now, Elijah the Tishbite was one of the settlers of Gilead. And he said to Ahab, "'As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand,' Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, if you are one who has studied history and the people who have made their marks on history, you know that it's impossible to separate the greatness of the person from the time frame in which they lived. It's true in military history, whether Napoleon or Lee or Grant or Patton or MacArthur. It's certainly true in political history, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill or Dr. Martin Luther King. And it's certainly true in spiritual history. And so if we are to understand the life and times of Elijah and the impact that he made, we need to understand something about the time frame in which he lived. In fact, sadly for many people, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is a closed book, it's, it's difficult to understand. And the reason is because we can't always put it together historically. So let's think for just a few moments before we begin this seven week series about the historical time frame in which this man lived and served God. Now I know for some of you who are listening, history was not your favorite subject in school, but it needs to be in the realm of biblical history. Because the Bible is important, it is the Word of God. And sadly, for the first half of the Bible, for many of us, it's the clean section of our Bible. Why? Because we're often intimidated by it. Maybe the exception would be the Proverbs and the Psalms. And one of the reasons that we are intimidated by the Old Testament is because we can't put it together historically. So let me begin this series by giving you first a a broad view of the Old Testament so that we can pinpoint the time frame in which Elijah lived and served. And if you can understand this broad view, you can take almost any book of the Old Testament and accordingly understand where it fits. If you remember, God founded the nation of Israel through a man named Abraham. Before Abraham, every man of God was a Gentile. But God starts a new nation with a man named Abram. And initially, if you remember, he had two sons, the son of promise, who was called Yitzhak, Isaac, and the son of the bondwoman, Ishmael. Ishmael, in turn, had 12 sons that formed the Arab nations of the world. Isaac, the son of promise, had two children, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob became the line through which the Messiah would come. He had 12 sons, and those 12 sons, corporately, after he was renamed Yitzrael, were called simply Israel, the sons of Israel. If you remember, a famine came in the land of Israel, and so the 12 tribes end up in Egypt, And God, through the watch care of Joseph, provides not just for the Jewish people, but for the surrounding nations. Joseph dies, the people multiply, and Exodus opens by reminding us there came a time when a new king arose who did not know Joseph. And so just as God had prophesied to Abraham, they were in the land of Egypt for 400 years. But then, just as God prophesied, he released his people through the leadership of Moses. Moses' life was 120 years, it's easy to follow, it's 40, 40, 40, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness uh, of uh, where he was a sheep rancher and then 40 years again in the wilderness as he carries the people to the edge of the promised land. He dies and after his death, Joshua steps up And of course, after Joshua dies, within one generation, the people of Israel forsook God. In one generation, degeneration took place. In that period of unbelief, we typically refer to it as the time of the judges, where the Jewish people were ruled by various judges. But eventually, the people wanted a king like the surrounding nations, and so God gave them the desires of their heart. And we enter into what we call the period of the monarchy or the period of the kingdom. The first three kings in Israel's history were the most famous, SDS, Saul, David, and Solomon. But if you remember, for 120 years, each man, Saul, David, Solomon, each served exactly 40 years for 120 years. So for 120 years, the kingdom of Israel was united, But if you remember, due to Solomon's moral compromise, the kingdom split north and south. Hold your finger here and go to 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. And I want you to follow along. During the latter time of Solomon's reign, he compromised himself morally by marrying foreign wives, unbelievers, and that caused his heart to be drawn away and to fall into idolatry. And so God judged Solomon. He disciplined him. Look at 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, and therein lies the problem. Now, notice uh, verse 4. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been Now, the consequences are spelled out beginning in, look at verse on 9. Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. Let me just say something in passing. You cannot violate the clear teaching of God's Word without suffering the consequences. And so, beginning now in 1 Kings 11 and verse 11, we read, "'So the Lord said to Solomon, "'Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, "'which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you "'and will give it to your servant. "'Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David.'" but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And so Rehoboam steps up to the throne, uh, Solomon's son. He foolishly listens to the younger uh, leaders in the nation, and he makes some very stupid mistakes. And in his pigheadedness and his greed, the nation divides in two. Here's a map that will give you a picture of what it looked like during that time. In 931, Solomon's son Rehoboam, he causes a split. And so remember, there were 12 tribes. Ten of the tribes in the north form what, as this map shows, is called Israel. And that can be a little confusing as you study the Scripture, because sometimes the term Israel is used to refer to all 12 tribes, especially up until the time the kingdom is united. But then after the kingdom divides, Israel typically is a term that's used to describe the 10 northern tribes, and they form their own kingdom of sorts under a fellow named Jeroboam. He doesn't want the people to go back to Jerusalem to worship the one place God had specified, and so he creates his own centers of worship using bulls as emblems. And of course, from 931 BC to 209, the northern kingdom, again called Israel, they have 20 kings, and every single king in the northern kingdom is wicked. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they go after the name of the larger tribe. They are called uh, Judah, and they had 20 kings as well. Twelve that are wicked, only eight that are good. So the northern kingdom, Israel, ignores God's command. They begin to dry up spiritually. They turn to an idolatrous lifestyle. And so God sent these different prophets to warn them. And in 722, just as God had predicted, the Assyrians came down and carried them away into captivity. The southern kingdom went another 136 years. And then in 586 BC, just as God had prophesied, the Babylonians came and carried away the two southern tribes. So to keep it straight, just remember I comes before J, A comes before B. Israel is carried away by the Assyrians. Judah is carried away by the Babylonians, all right? Now, I comes before J, A comes before B. It's just a simple way in which to capsulize in your thinking how this history unfolded. So when you read an Old Testament book, one of the questions you always want to ask is at what time in Israel's history did this book take place? If you understand, for instance, that Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, so he is living after the kingdom is united. It's split north and south. He serves the northern kingdom, Israel. Remember, 20 kings. Every single one of them are wicked men. Terrible leadership. And uh, it helps you to understand the time frame in which he lived. In fact, any of the Old Testament books that are named after the prophet who wrote them. There are 17 that will take you from Isaiah to Malachi. You want to ask, did they preach before the exile? Did they preach during the exile? or did they preach after the exile? Before the exile, we have what we call pre-exilic prophets. Some of those prophets preached to the northern kingdom, some of those prophets preached to the southern kingdom, Judah, and a few of them preached to both. During the exile, uh, during the time of the Babylonian captivity, there were just two prophets that preached, Daniel and Ezekiel, we call them exilic prophets. After the exile, there were just three prophets that preached, uh, namely Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So Elijah lives during the time frame. After the United Kingdom, uh, the kingdom has been split. He's preaching before the northern ten tribes, Israel as they're called, are carried away by the Assyrians. And so this time of captivity where um, the Assyrians carry them away is to follow after Elijah's ministry. So he is living during the time of the kings, so to speak. And so we have the book of First and Second Kings. And as you read through those books, much like the Chronicles, though the Chronicles largely focuses on the southern kingdom, Judah, you'll read of two kings ruling at the same time. That's because there's a northern kingdom and there is a southern kingdom. And if you read here 1 Kings 12 through 16, you discover that with the exception of a king named Asa, who did right in the sight of the Lord, all of these kings were evil. And Israel goes deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity. Look at 1 Kings 16, turn back a page in your Bible to 1 Kings 16, and look, if you will, at verse 29 for just a moment. 1 Kings 16, 29. We're told now Ahab the son of Amri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria, that was their capital, 22 years. And so this verse informs us that Asa, whom the Bible says did right in the sight of the Lord in chapter 15, um, he's ruling over the two southern tribes, Judah. He does so for 22 years. And at the same time, you have this fellow Ahab. And he's ruling over the 10 northern tribes called Israel. And he is an important figure in the Old Testament. That God gives him six chapters of press. Look at verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's his claim to fame. He did more evil than all of the other kings who went before him. Out of all the kings that are listed in Omri, Uh, Ahab's dad, up until that time, is rated, according to verse 25 of chapter 16, as the pinnacle of evil to that day. But suddenly, the award is wrenched from his daddy, and it's given to Ahab, who uh, supersedes his own father in evil. And so Ahab steps on the scene, and it looks like the Antichrist has arrived centuries before. I mean, he's evil beyond evil. Look at verse 31. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This man's heart is so hard, his conscience is so seared that the scripture says here it was a trivial thing for him to live in wickedness. God tells us that Ahab's Baal worship was far more deplorable than Jeroboam's bull worship. If Jeroboam's idolatry was like drinking polluted water. Ahab's idolatry was like drinking out of a sewer pipe. It was evil beyond evil. His heart was so hard, the Scripture says that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. Baal worship, on any account, is absolutely lethal. But what makes it so terrible is that it has its own evangelist, namely this woman, Jezebel. She's not content to keep Baal worship within the synagogue there on the grounds. She wants to spread it across the kingdom. Have you ever noticed as you read through the book of Kings that only one king's wife is actually mentioned? Why is that? Well, I think for two significant reasons. Number one, she wore the pants in the marriage. She controlled Ahab. In chapter 21 and verse 25, we're told, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. She led the family spiritually. But secondly, she was the one who introduces Baal worship into Israel. She's the driving force behind Baal worship. Her daddy had Baal in his name, just like many of the prophets have El or God in their name. And Jezebel, she's determined to make a strong beachhead to change the whole direction of the nation. You know, when I study her life, it appears to me that she was demon-possessed because she has all the marks of demon possession. she's infamous for her evil. Look at verses 32 and 33. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. We're gonna discover that's Baal's girlfriend, so to speak. And what did God think of this king's throne? Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel, Who were before him. And so that is the day in which Elijah ministers. And you will never appreciate the ministry of Elijah unless you understand the day in which he lived. God's people had no spiritual leadership from the kings, zero in the northern kingdom where he serves God's people. The nation is on skids, they're going deeper and deeper into depravity, and their future is bleak. But Elijah is not afraid. He was willing to face the forces of hell because he was called of God. He believed that God was alive and that God was able to do exactly all that he promised. He is living in a generation literally of spiritual pygmies, people who have no backbone, people who are unwilling and apparently unable by their unbelief to stand up for God. And so, that forces us to ask a question this morning, what was it that made Elijah so courageous? How could he live with such victory in such difficult times? Well, if you printed out your note-taking outline there from the website, you can see the title of this morning's message is, Trusting God in Difficult Times. And I want to underscore two keys, two essentials that come to the surface of this section of Scripture as to why this man was so courageous. So let's first consider the courage of Elijah. How is it that he could believe God in his generation? Well, first, because of his courage. Notice how verse 1 begins. Now, Elijah the Tishbite. Who was of the settlers of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now that's a very, very courageous statement. This Jewish prophet, Elijah, whose name means my God is Jehovah, or my name is Yahweh. And Ahab would have immediately picked up on the meaning of his name. This Jewish prophet comes into the presence of this king, this king who thought he had embalmed and buried Jehovah worship and had replaced it with the worship of Baal. And he is standing, Elijah, this prophet, before the king and his wife Jezebel, according to chapter 18 and verse 4, who is killing all the prophets of God, which again forces us to ask another question. How did he muster the courage to stand before this king who could have easily have taken his life? Where did he get such boldness? And how do we get that kind of courage today? Well, there are two obvious reasons that are highlighted in the text. They're in your note-taking outline. First, he was convinced of God's power. He was a man who was convinced of God's power. We read, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, It didn't matter to Elijah that Ahab had declared Jehovah God worship dead and Baal worship alive. Ahab thought he had basically interred the worship of the one true God that he believed was a fake God and that Baal should be worshiped. And so here is this man who is not overwhelmed by the circumstances but courageously steps into the presence of this wicked king. He doesn't believe his hands are tied. He doesn't believe that God is weak. He believes that God is able to do all that he has promised. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us of that, and he's writing in the context not to lost people but to save people. And there it says in 11.6, "...and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is." That is, meaning that he is alive, that's the context, not that he exists, that's a given in Scripture, but that God is alive, that God is able to do precisely what he wants to do, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Elijah knew he served the one true God who is alive, and he knew something about the character of the one true God. As we studied the book of Daniel a few years ago, Daniel 11:32 32 says, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And so Elijah is displaying strength and Elijah is taking action. He's there in the presence of King Ahab, not in his own strength, but he is there in the strength of God. Notice, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, And I hope at home you have a Bible in your lap and you're looking at it because you'll get so much more out of any sermon I preach if you have God's word in your hands. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Do you see what he's saying? Elijah is saying, I'm not just standing here before you, Ahab. I am standing in this place before the God who lives. By the way, how do you convince an unbelieving world that God is alive? You convince an unbelieving world that God is alive by the aliveness and the power that is in your life. The most convincing thing of true biblical Christianity is its power to change a life. The world is not overwhelmed and convinced by your argumentation and by all of your apologetics. The world is not overwhelmed by your success story, and that's what we want to do. We want to parade across platforms, all of these great success stories in evangelicalism. The world is convinced only by that which it cannot produce, and that is a changed life. Freedom from the guilt of sin. Freedom from the slavery of sin. That's what will grab an unbelieving world's attention. When Christ likeness is portrayed in your home, when godly children who display the fruit of the Spirit begin to exhibit a different kind of life than their peers. Do you remember shortly after Pentecost, the Jewish leaders, the elders, and the scribes saw the apostles? And they made this statement in Acts 4. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Only God can do that. And that's why Bible-based Christianity, because there's a whole lot of fake Christianity out there today that has very little to do with what we read in the Bible, But Bible-based Christianity will revolutionize a person's life. And that's what God uses, among other things, to get people to question. Let me ask you a question as I asked myself this week. What is there in your life that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God? What is there in your life that is proof positive that you have a living, life-changing relationship with God through Christ. Elijah, Elijah, this prophet, he he is just filled with reality. He is so different from so many people in the day in which he walked. He sees himself as God's representative. He sees himself as God's ambassador. He sees himself as representing the all-powerful God who puts kings in place and who takes them down And he's not afraid to walk into the presence of this king. And that's what we need today. We have too many Christians who are stuttering, who are paralyzed, it seems, in the midst of a wicked world, and they're just folding their hands, and they're in hiding in their little Bible studies. But they're doing very little in a forward way to change the world for the glory of God. Elijah could have thrown up his hands and said, idolatry is everywhere. What can I do? I'm just one man. And That's what God needs. One man, one woman, one boy, one girl who is available, who will believe God that God is able to do precisely all that he has promised. And how does he do it? Through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, the dunamos, we get our word dynamite. It is the power of God to change people, and certainly it should be seen in the pulpit. Certainly it should be seen by those who are in full-time ministry of one sort or another, But it needs to be seen in your squadron. It needs to be seen in in your boardrooms. It needs to be seen in the shop, on the university campus, in your home, or wherever you find yourself. Unbelievers need to see the work of the living God through the people of God. So here's Elijah. He's a man with courage. One, because he was convinced of God's power that God could change things. But secondly, there on your outline, he was convinced of God's provision. He's convinced of God's provision. Look again in verse 1. He says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, many times a prophet of God would go into the presence of a king or to the people at large, and simply deliver a message, some prediction that God gave them concerning their future. Uh, God would often make a prophet a direct conduit of new revelation, uh, something that had not been revealed in the past, and He would go and speak. We call that foretelling. Other times, a prophet would not simply foretell, but he would take revelation that God had already given, and he would foretell it. He would not preach some new revelation. He would simply preach that which God had already revealed. And you see both aspects in the life and ministry of the prophets. And really, this idea of forth telling is what a pastor is to do. I cannot preach new revelation, is some claim they can. But as God's representative, I am to preach what God has already given God has done writing the Scripture. The canon of Scripture is closed. He is not giving new revelation, as many are claiming today. My job is to foretell. Now, I might tell of the future, but only in reference to what God has already said about what is going to happen in the future. So let me ask a question. If I say, Jesus Christ is going to come back for sure by 2025... Am I foretelling or uh, am I foretelling? Well, I would be allegedly foretelling, but that's not something I can truthfully do because again, the last chapter, the last paragraph of the Scripture in the Revelation, not to mention Moses and Solomon warn us that we cannot add to what God has given. The canon of Scripture is closed. Not to mention that such a prediction would contradict what Jesus himself said, but of that day no one knows. But if I were to say a day is coming when Jesus, who physically, literally was ascended into heaven, who is at the right hand of the Father this morning, is literally, physically going to come back to judge the living and the dead, would I be foretelling or would I be forthtelling? I would be forthtelling. I would be telling the future based on what God has already revealed in Scripture. So, important question. What is Elijah doing? Is Elijah foretelling or is Elijah foretelling? Well, look at again at 1 Kings 17 and verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I want you to see that he was not primarily foretelling. As he was foretelling a promise that God had already revealed, you want, might want to put two scriptures out in the margin next to verse one there in your Bible. One would be James five seventeen and eighteen, James five seventeen and eighteen, and the other would be from Moses, and it would be Deuteronomy eleven sixteen, Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Now hold your finger here in 1 Kings and fast forward to the back of the Bible and go to the book of James. Go to the book of James. Go to James chapter 5 for a moment. Now James 5.17 gives us some information through the inspirational work of the Holy Spirit that you don't find anywhere in the Old Testament. Actually, it's first given by Jesus in Luke 4:25, where Jesus revealed that for three and a half years it did not rain. That's not something you find in the Old Testament. That's divine commentary given to us in the New Testament. And so James, the half brother of the Lord, says this in James 5:17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Sometimes we read of these prophets and we think, well, they lived in a different world. They breathed different air than we do. But he reminds us, no, he had a nature just like ours. He's reminding us that he was a man. He was not some superman, that Elijah was a regular person like you and me. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact that this man could courageously, boldly confront this king was a result, among other things, that he prayed. He was able, with boldness and courage, to stand before this wicked king. Why? Because he had already had an audience with the king of kings. He was a man who knew how to stand before men because he knew how to kneel before God. He prayed earnestly. And James, of course, prefaces this illustration by reminding us that every believer can see answer to prayer because he says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James wants us to know that what God did for Elijah in answer to prayer, God can do for us. James knows that we might be tempted to ask, where is the God of Elijah? When we really need to be asking, where are the Elijahs of God? The same God who answered Elijah's prayer can answer your prayer. Now, follow closely. You see, unlike an announcement of impending judgment that Jonah gave, remember Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Did Jonah have to pray that to happen? No, God was going to do it. There are some things God's going to do, whether you pray about it or not. Someday my body is going to be resurrected. It has nothing to do with, Lord, please resurrect my body. He is going to resurrect everyone. Some, to walk on streets of gold. Some, to live in a place of eternal judgment. That's going to happen. So the prediction, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, He didn't have to pray that judgment down. God said he was going to do it if they did not repent. But Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain, the Scripture says, for three years and six months. Again, a time frame you don't learn in the Old Testament. God reveals it to us here and through Jesus. So where on earth did Elijah get the idea to pray for no rain? Now go to that other book in the Bible, Deuteronomy. Go back to the book of Genesis, and you'll come to the fifth book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. Our English Bibles use the names for the first five books from the Septuagint. The Septuagint, abbreviated in the NASB LXX, is the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most Jews had to read the Old Testament in Greek because they lost at some point in their history the ability to read Hebrew. And so we follow the Septuagint, Deuteros II, Namas, law. So this is the second law. And the title emphasizes the second set of the Ten Commandments and the expansion of the law that Moses gives from Mount Sinai. In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's always good to have the big picture of any book. You know, Genesis, four events, four people, creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's Genesis. Well, Deuteronomy is built around three specific sermons or speeches that Moses gives there on the plains of Moab just before God takes him home. The first sermon is historical. It's covered in chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 4, and the focus is on what God has done. The second sermon he gives is legal. It deals with what God expects, and it begins in the middle of chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 26. The third sermon he gives begins in chapter 27 through the end of the book, and it's prophetical what God will do. So, three sermons what God has done, what God expects, what God will do. Now, here in chapter 11, you're in the second sermon. What God expects, Deuteronomy chapter 11. And we find two answers to answer our question as to why Elijah prayed the way he did. Look at Deuteronomy 11 and pick it up in verse 11. "'But the land into which you are about to cross "'to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, "'drinks water from the rain of heaven, "'a land for which the Lord your God cares.'" The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. Then notice verse 15. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But then Moses warns, beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Elijah knew what God promised and that God is able to perform exactly what he said, and he knew that since the nation in his day had defected spiritually, that God had reason to withhold the reign. And so Elijah knew the covenant God had made with the people, and he will expand in 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy some of the consequences of breaking that covenant. God had warned through Moses that if Israel worshiped other gods, at Yahweh, among other things, as the text says here, would shut up the heavens so that there would be no rain and the ground would not yield its fruit. Now, Baal was the fertility god. He was the storm god. The pagans believed that he was the one who sent the rain to fructify the earth. And so if Baal cannot produce rain in his area of expertise, in his area of specialty, then his reputation is going to be shattered. It's going to shrivel into the cracks of the field as they get larger and larger and longer and longer. So in asking God to stop the rain, Elijah, in essence, is declaring to Ahab that God is going to shut off Baal's faucet that God is going to do precisely what he promised. And so claiming the promises of God, he earnestly, fervently, and effectively believes that God is able to do that which he has promised. And he's really claiming what God has said in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He didn't just dream this up that God would turn the faucet off. He had a promise. Now listen to your pastor. If you are going to be a person that God can use, a teenager, a man, or a woman, who has great courage, then among other things, you must know the Word of God. If Elijah didn't know Deuteronomy 11, he couldn't have prayed so fervently. The Bible reveals God's plans, and it gives us God's promises, and we need to know those. But if you don't know God's Word, you can't plead the promises of God. And if you do know God's word, but you don't pray, then it just makes you arrogant and proud and lifted up. So often people say to me, what can we do? What resources are available to help us in this wicked day? And someone's always coming down the road with some new program that the church is supposed to implement. I'll tell you what we can do. Number one, we can learn God's word, and that is absent in the pulpits of America, expository preaching. We have traded it for all the fluff and stuff that so many pastors are giving to entertain people on Sunday mornings. And number two, we can pray. And you can pray with power when you know what the scripture says. That's the courage of Elijah. He was courageous because, one, he was convinced of God's power. And number two, he was courageous because he was convinced of God's promises made available through, his, uh, through prayer. But there's something else I want us to learn about how this man could live in difficult times. Roman numeral two there on your outline. I want us to think this morning about the concealment of Elijah. Beginning now in verse 2, Elijah moves from the realm of the public into the realm of the private. I want now us to look at verses 2 and 3. We're told the word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherif, which is east of the Jordan. Hide myself. God, you've called me to preach. I'm your prophet. No, God says, hide yourself. In the Hebrew word, uh, shatha, has the idea of concealment. God wants his prophet to conceal or to hide himself and for three reasons. First, his concealment was the mark of God's protection. God's concealment was the mark of his protection. God was concerned for the physical safety of this man of God. If you look over, turn over a page to chapter 18, and look at verse 10, Obadiah, not the one that bears the book by his name, but there's this man, Obadiah, we're going to study him, and he says in First Kings 18 and verse 10, as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master, referring to King Ahab, has not sent to search for you, that is the prophet Elijah, And when they said, he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. So when Elijah first told King Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be no rain nor dew these three years except by my word. Ahab probably thought, oh, the heavens, they're not gonna dry up." Oh, finally the rain stops. He probably thought, this is a short drought. We can deal with it for a few months, but this drought goes on and on and on and on for three and a half years. Farms would fail, livestock would die, famine and disease would come. And when it happened, King Ahab wants Elijah bad. And so he went looking for him. Why? Because Elijah said, it would not rain but by my word. And I'm sure he wanted to track him down to try to force him to change his word. Not to mention, according to chapter 18 and verse 4, Jezebel, the wicked wife of Ahab, wants to kill the prophet since she's already butchered many. And so God puts his prophet into his protective care. And by the way, God's protective care has not changed one bit. Put out in the margin, Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. In that passage, Isaiah the prophet recounts uh, the experience of the children of Israel. They had thought that God had forsaken them. and, And so God answers. But Zion said, Israel said, the people said, the Lord has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. But listen to God's answer. Can a woman... Forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And then God says this in verse 16. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, walls were built around a city for protection. And so God records to Isaiah, your walls are continually before me. Now, I suppose there's no part of your body that's so well known as the palms of your hands. You may look at them, maybe they're dirty and they need to be washed. You may look at them and there's some calluses on them from hard work. God says, he has inscribed you on the palms of his hands. He never loses track of you. Jesus said, I will never forsake you. I will be with you unto the end of the age. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so God's instruction to Elijah is that I'm going to protect you. This is part of his witness protection program for his prophet. He puts him in a very, very safe place. But that's only part of the reason he has Elijah hide himself. I also want you to notice point B on your outline, his concealment was the method of God's provision. His concealment was the method of God's provision. Look now, if you will, at verse four of 1 Kings 17. It shall be, that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Elijah is about to experience God's unique catering service. Look at verses 5 and 6. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Now these verses remind me that God's direction includes God's provision. God says, go to the brook, and I'm gonna provide for you there. God never gives you a command in which he will not give you the means in which to fulfill that command. We often say God's work done in God's way he never lacks God's support. I remember when I was a student at Dallas Seminary and Dr. Walford was in his 50th year. My first year was his last year as the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he recounted a story that took place in 1924 when Lewis Sperry Chafer, the first president, was in dire straits, and the seminary had almost capitulated. It had come to the point of bankruptcy, and it was to foreclose at noon that day. And so several of the men met with Dr. Chafer, and they began to pray, and in that meeting, was Dr. Harry Ironside. And if you've ever read some of his sermons or heard them, there's a few audio recordings that are left. He was probably one of the greatest expositors in the first half of the 20th century. And he prayed in his characteristically refreshing way, Lord, you know what our needs are. You said in your word that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of those cattle and send us the money. And while they're praying a Texas cattleman came into the office and this man wanted to see Dr. Chafer and she said, well, he's in a prayer meeting right now. He said, well, you know, I'm a cattleman and I've had two large loads of cattle in Fort Worth and I've been trying to make a business deal with the profit I just made on those two loads I sold last week and I can't seem to do anything with it and I just thought this morning, God is compelling me to come and and to bring the money to Dallas Seminary. Here's the check. And she timidly knocked on the door to interrupt that meeting. And finally, Dr. Chafer answered the door, and she handed him the check, and he immediately knew the name of this famous cattleman. And by the way, it was for the exact amount they needed. And this man had absolutely no idea of the need even the straits that they were in. And Dr. Chafer said, Harry, God just sold some of his cattle. <laughs> that was God's miraculous provision. And I believe that God is providing for this church. And he is giving us an impact here and around the world by his sovereign, omnipotent grace because we are obeying what we know. And here is Elijah, he obeys what he knows and God brings him to this brook where he provides for his needs And I happen to believe that if we will be faithful and obey what we know, that God will provide for our needs. Elijah, go hide yourself. It was a mark of God's protection, it was a mark of God's provision, but also his concealment was the means to God's pathway. His concealment was the means to God's pathway. Look now, if you will, at verses 5 and 6. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Now, the liberal critics, who always tried to write out the miracles in the Bible, say that the Hebrew word for, for ravens, uh, arev, Uh, They said maybe it was just miswritten and it should be the word that's very closely related for Arab. Now, that's a slick way in which to tinker with the text, but it won't fly, no pun intended. The liberals always want to manipulate the Scripture as to what God has plainly said. But this was a miracle. And the miracle was not that an Arab fed a Jew, though I suppose that might be a miracle in some instances. The miracle was that God provided both drink and food for his prophet at this brook. Now here's Baal. He is unable to cause one stalk of grain to grow. He is unable to provide one drop of rain. But God gives his prophet plenty to eat and to drink. He gives him meat and bread and bread. Listen, God is the creator of the universe, and the reason the most attacked book in all the Bible is Barashit sheet is because people want to say that what took place in Genesis didn't really take place. But if you can believe Genesis 1-1, then you can believe 1 Kings 17. And what I find so fascinating is that, fascinating is that God delivered through these birds both meat and bread, no vegetables, thank you very much. He used a raven, which, by the way, was considered an unclean animal. And I suppose that Elijah would be reminded of that twice a day, that God could use an unclean, unworthy thing, a raven, a non-kosher bird to accomplish His purposes, And Elijah, if he at times might have felt tempted to think he was unworthy, all God would have had to have done was remind him of those birds. But the main reason God has him here, this brook, is God wants to give him some new direction. God wants to give him some new information, some new insight that he could only get at this quiet brook. See, Elijah has been out there ministering for God. God sends him to this wicked king to preach a sermon. And then God says, go hide yourself at a brook. Why? Because he needed to have his spiritual batteries recharged. Think about all that led up to that sermon. He knew that he was going into the presence of a king who could take his life. And so he sought God. He was on his face before God. And I'm sure even after that short sermon, though we may only have obviously a line or two, he was exhausted. Lord, you want me to go to a brook and hide myself? Yes. And that's what God wants some of us to do. See, it's easy to go show yourself. It's quite another thing to go hide yourself. There are many that maybe are listening and live streaming this morning where God is saying, listen, go hide yourself. That's a difficult assignment in a busy world, to slow down, to be still, to have time with God. But you show me an individual who's effective in public, and I will show you a person who is efficient in his private life. The only way you can communicate to a lost world is when you first commune in the presence of God where you linger in his presence unrushed. I've never met a Christian who sat down and planned to live a mediocre life. But many believers are living mediocre lives because they're living unexamined lives. Lives where their minds are not being renewed through the study of Scripture and through prayer. Now, as we close, let me share three applications that come to the surface of my mind so that we might be men and women that will trust God in difficult times because we're living in difficult times. Number one, if I am to believe God, then I must trust that He is sovereign over evil. I don't know if it struck you, but it jumped off the pages of Scripture to me, just the suddenness of Elijah's appearance. Now, Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Now, as you read 1 Kings 16, it appears that everything is capitulating to Baal, that hell is having a holiday, that evil is winning. And then suddenly, we're standing, listening to this prophet whose name means, my God is Yahweh. Now, typically, when a prophet is mentioned in Scripture, he's given some kind of You know, background, there's a more deliberate approach. Now, there was a certain prophet, Elijah by name, who was the son of so and so, and he came to Ahab who had been worshiping Baal, and and the Lord gave him a word, and he said, Go arise and preach to Ahab. But God doesn't do any of that. He just suddenly comes. Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. We never heard of him before, and suddenly he just appears. We know nothing about this man. We want to ask questions. Where did he go to seminary? Did he have a wife? Did he have kids? You know, how did he become a prophet? But God suppresses those details. Because I think, among other things, he wants to remind us that he is sovereign over evil. He suddenly appears when the world is in despair because God is over this world. And we can be sure that absolutely nothing ever happens apart from God's notice. God is working often in the background in ways you don't see, and then suddenly, without notice, you see God's answer. It may be a man or a woman that God raises up from nowhere, or it may ultimately be when God brings his son back from heaven. But understand, when evil seems to be flourishing, It's only a superficial flourish because our God is sovereign. God's not up in heaven this morning wringing his hands over the reprobate behavior that is beginning to sweep this world. There's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. God is in total control, and you can be sure that his plan, his movement, his person, and ultimately his son in the end will win. It appeared in Elijah's day that Satan was winning. But God is in control. He is sovereign over all, even evil. Secondly, I am reminded if I am to believe God, then I must trust he is sovereign in his ways. That God is sovereign in his ways. It's marvelous to see how God provides for his servant Elijah by sending ravens, we'll see next time, by a widow in a place called Zarephath. Why doesn't God provide for his other prophets in that way? When we come to the 18th chapter, we're gonna find many of them who are martyred for their faith by Jezebel's hand, and still others who are hidden in caves in groups of 50 who are sustained by one of God's brave servants with bread and water only. Yet most of us would rather identify with Elijah. Yes, I'm a believer, I'm a servant like Elijah. And I can expect God to provide for me the way he provided for Elijah. And we want to identify with him rather than those persecuted prophets who are fleeing, who are hiding, who only get bread and water, and Elijah gets water, bread, and meat. So how are we to understand the way God provided for Elijah and the way he provided for the other 7,000 prophets who were still alive? You said, Pastor... God's work done in God's way never lacks God's support. That's true. I believe that with all my heart. Well, you seem to be contradicting yourself. Not at all. God never promises that his people will be totally sheltered from disaster or evil or even at times from famine. Paul said, I know what it's like to live in plenty, and I know what it's like to live with little. You say, well, is there any comfort? and the way God provided for Elijah for my own life because I'm a follower of the Messiah. Yes, there is, but not as the prosperity theologians would have you to believe. They would have you to believe that God wants to supernaturally supply, and Elijah had a supernatural supply as one of them preached, and the others didn't because he had greater faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. Were they less blessed? Were they less righteous? Were they less faithful? Scores of them had given their lives for the cause. But shysters like Joel Olstein and Benny Hinn and Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland and Jim Baker... They might tell you, well, Elijah had greater faith. And by the way, where are all these faith healers in the time of this virus? I don't see any of them around right now. No, these 7,000 men were right in the middle of God's will. Paul said, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Yes, God will provide, but not always the way we might think. Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God allowed some to be provided for in a cave. He allowed others to die by the hand of Jezebel. Why? Because their service was over. George Whitfield the great evangelist of a hundred couple hundred years ago said the worker is immortal until God is finished with him. And there comes a time when God is finished with us. And it's time to go home. And sometimes he takes the servant home even through persecution and batting because his ways are not our ways. That doesn't preach, that doesn't fill churches, that doesn't pack stadiums. No, it doesn't, but it's the truth. It's what God has revealed in his word. Third and finally, if I am to believe God, then I must trust that he is sovereign in my trials. Now, we didn't examine verse seven, so let's look at it now. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Everything was fine until one day the brook began to run slower, then it began to trickle, and then it began to puddle, and then it dried up. I mean, what a revolting development. What are you doing, God? God knew exactly what He was doing because He is not simply interested in launching you into the realm of justification. God is also interested in providing for you and growing you in the realm of sanctification. When you are justified, you are declared righteous in the sight of God, as, as ho- declared as holy as God himself is. He gives you the righteousness of God in Christ. But now he wants to make you holy in your experience. And sometimes God uses drying or even a dried up brook in which to accomplish it. Had Elijah, I mean, was he being punished for what he did? He's right in the center of God's will. He's obeying God. He's fervently praying that it might not rain. And now he's at a drying brook. And now all the water's gone. And some of you listening to me, you're at dried up brooks today. It might be sickness might be the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a job, the loss of friends. Maybe you had to move and your church is gone that you once loved and the people whom you cherished are so far away. I remember really our first dried up, brook as a relatively newly married couple. We were home missionaries working in a campus ministry and we were headed for a seminary from Duke University to Dallas. And God sold our home in one day without a real estate agent and we made a huge profit. And then He graciously provided for us with a brand new home never lived in and all the funds that we needed to move and then to begin seminary. We moved across the country and no sooner was I up to my eyeballs in New Testament Greek when a thyroid tumor develops on my wife's neck. And the endocrinologist suspects that it could be cancerous, but because she's in the midst of a pregnancy, the kind of tests that he wants to do and the surgery to remove it, he doesn't want to endanger our baby. And then while she's pregnant with our third child, Grace Anna, six months into the pregnancy, she begins to have problems, and she is confined to total bed rest. During the same time, our son Jeremy develops a large inflamed lump in his leg, and he's initially uh, diagnosed with muscular dystrophy there at Children's Hospital in Dallas. Now, to top it off, I wrecked the car twice in the course of two weeks. One of my relatives said, are you sure that God has called you to go to seminary? Are you sure you are in God's will? I knew I was right in the center of God's will. And I knew that though our brook had dried up, that God wanted to use the trials and the circumstances to shape our lives as much as the courses that I was enrolled in. Since then, we've faced many dried up brooks in our life, but they're all part of the shaping process. And some of you who are listening to me this morning, you're at a dried up brook. At one time, you were at a time of great blessing financially, but now it's changed. Your business is failing. Maybe there was a time when you could use your voice for the Lord. Maybe you were a deacon or an elder in your church or had some special ministry, but your brook has dried up. Your brook dries up, but only through the hand of an all-sovereign God. Why does God let our brooks dry up? Sometimes because he wants to teach us to trust him and not just in our gifts, in our bank accounts, in our abilities. Sometimes he wants to demonstrate to an unbelieving world that we love him and serve him, not just because of what he does for us, but because of who he is, like he did with Job. Elijah may have needed to learn that God who gives the water can take the water away. Job says, "Blessed be the Lord who gives, who takes it away." We tend to think that once God gives the water, He should never retract it; that once God gives a maid, He should never take that maid away; that once God gives a child, He should never remove that child; once God gives us a good business, He should never let it fail that once God gives us a particular ministry, he should never stop it. And then the brook dries up, and we need to be able to say with Job the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, you might be asking this morning, Lord, what happened? What's going on in my life? And God says, I'm just answering your prayer. You ever pray, Lord, make me more like Jesus Christ? God says, I'm going to answer that prayer. I mean, Elijah might have thought, God, why are you drying up this brook? And then maybe it dawned on the prophet, Elijah, that is exactly what you prayed for. And I'm answering it. God knows what he is doing. God knows what he is about. Over 80 years ago, Amy Carmichael, she served, by the way, as a missionary in India for 55 years. She served kids, she loved kids. You see people who love kids, you have someone who is much like Jesus Christ. You see people who are irritated by kids and bothered by kids, you see a person who is very much unlike Jesus Christ. She served in India, they called Amy Ama, which is in that particular section of India was the name for mom. And from her own life experiences, having served there 55 years, she said, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects, how he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him, how God bends but never breaks, when his good he understands, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. God knew what he was doing with Elijah, and God knows what he's doing with you today. Now, if you are listening to me, and you've never met Christ, unlike for the true child of God, Your trials are just trials. But the promises of trials being used by God to shape us and to form us and to mature us and to make us more godly is a promise for the one who's been born from above. Listen, you can't even begin to grow spiritually and to change spiritually until you've been born spiritually. And Jesus said, unless you are born twice, You'll never see, you'll never understand, and you will never, ever enter God's kingdom. You can't earn it, you can't achieve it, you can't merit it because the penalty is death and so a substitute paid it for you on a cross because the life is in the blood. And so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness and there's only one who walked on this earth with sinless, innocent blood and his name is Yeshua. Yeshua. Jesus died in your place, and he proved he was sinless, that death could not hold him in the grave when he was resurrected from the dead. And if you will call on his name today in faith, believing that God will do precisely what he said, whoever will call on Jesus' name, I will save right now, instantly. In one moment, you can be saved if you want to be. So I invite you to be on God's behalf as if God were entreating through me. I beg you to be reconciled to God. Now, our Father, we thank you for the prophet Elijah. Thank you that we're going to have a chance to study him in the next couple of months. And we pray that as we read of this portion of Scripture that you've gave, given us, that we would not just become smarter sinners, but that we would become more like Christ. I know many are, are listening to me, some who have lost loved ones by this virus, In different parts of the country in different parts of the world and they are heartbroken some who have lost their businesses some who want to work but they can't work and they're struggling in so many different ways but we thank you that you meet us at dried up Brooks and I pray today father for someone listening who has never received your forgiveness That they might call upon Jesus, that they would say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner who deserves judgment, but I thank you that you took my judgment for me. You proved your ability when you were raised from the dead. Lord Jesus, come and forgive my sin and change me and make me to be the kind of person you want me to be. Now, Father, help someone today to do that to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We know, Father, the clock will someday run out. May we not miss this heightened warning that you are sending across the world. We ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.